From the Vaults, audio from Edmonton's past. This recording consists of the second part of an interview of Margaret Peggy Farnell O'Connor, conducted by John McIsaac on September 20th, 1984. This material was recorded on a 5-inch open reel tape and was digitized by an archivist on March 24th, 2021. Well, Peggy, what were we talking about? I checked the tape just to make sure, and uh, we had left off... <coughs> Was First time. something in the war? I yeah, think. it was about 1942, mm-hmm. and you were in Uruguay, mm-hmm. and I think you were uh, uh, working the cables there, you know, uh, mm-hmm. transmitting cables and so mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Now, well, yes. Mm-hmm. Did did now those cables that you handled? They came in over uh, the the short wave. Did they or were they handled? No, no, they came in on the regular. Um, not AT&T, but what was it called? I can't remember. It was an international, just the ordinary, because they came in groups of five numbers. And then when no one could presumably decode it because we had what they called a one-time pad for, um, changing, like we'd receive the telegram, just like an ordinary telegram, and it would be nothing but numbers in groups of five, and that's all. And then we would put those numbers under the numbers for that particular day and uh, subtract or add, depending on whether it was being encoded or decoded, and um, then they look up, then we would get another number, a four-digit one, and then we'd look up to see what those uh, um, numbers meant. Now, that many cables coming in with that kind of code to the local telegraph office, Uh didn't that kind of raise their eyebrows that you were up to something? Probably did, except they were addressed to the embassy and I suppose that they, they, they came into the consulate, actually, the British consulate, which was downtown, not the embassy. And they were all coded and decoded down there and handed in down there. But I'm sure that they came on the regular, uh, through the regular cable company. So. They figured if going to the embassy, most material would be coded anyway. Yes, so. yes, it would. <clears throat> and it was warriors, so what, what yes. did they expect? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that was the girl who did the coding and decoding, um, Renee Matthews was her name, and she worked downtown in an office in the consulate and did most of it. But then in the evenings and on the weekends we took turns and if it was my turn on duty for the weekend if I went out of my hotel room which I mostly did uh, I had to always leave my telephone number as to where I'd gone so that in the middle of a party or anything else they could get you and then if there was something most immediate then it would be marked perhaps most immediate and then I would simply take a taxi and go in to the... I'm glad, Peggy, you mentioned your your social life there. 
mm-hmm. because I wonder when you went out for a walk on the beach or yeah. whatever fun things you like to do, did you fear at all for for your life or that somebody might hurt you because of the kind of work you were doing? No, I really didn't. Probably too stupid to worry <laughs> about. But I didn't. Uh, I felt, see, I was ostensibly working for the railway, plus um, also to cover my boss's title. He had, he was civil attaché at the British Embassy, and all of it really came under the embassy. All the material went over there and went out from there. Of course, in the diplomatic mail bags taken by a what we called KM, a King's Messenger. The British called it that. The um, Americans called it couriers. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, no, I wasn't, but I was always interested in seeing the people in the, like this double agent that I told you about, Lodge. I knew what he looked like from his pictures that I had on file, and there he was in the dining room, in the same dining room as I was, and of course he didn't know me. Eventually he sort of did, because they had one or two meetings out at this house and he was there and I was there, but nobody was ever introduced or anything like that. Dee, when you would sit in the dining room and see this fellow who was a double agent who Mm -hmm. had been working for the Germans and now working for the Allies, Mm -hmm. you knew about... Working for both at the same time, really. Really? Yeah. (laughs) It gets complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. You're right. what went through your mind as you as you just looked at him? Did you feel kind of smart, or uh, you know, or or uh, feel almost like a practical joke had been played on this man? Or well, it was interesting to see what he looked like. These when the things just the name, and then of course we had seen pictures of him. I think because I certainly knew which one he was in the dining room, but. Um, no, it was just rather amusing to think that uh, I knew all about him and he knew nothing whatsoever about me. <laughs> Hopefully, no, he didn't. <laughs> um, your passport, when you were there, mm-hmm. apparently, or you know, at least as far as the cover is concerned, working for the railway company, did what, did you have a diplomatic passport? Yes, I had. Well, I had a, a government official passport. British. Well, it was a Canadian passport, but where it said occupation or whatever it says, mm-hmm. and, and it had had librarian, then that was crossed out, had been crossed out in Washington. In um, Yes, it was done in Washington. My passport was sent up to Washington, and it was uh, uh, the, the British ambassador in Haiti had had it changed for me. And just simply it said government official as occupation. Uh, I was thinking that perhaps after you left Haiti, they gave you a new passport that, because mm-hmm. you wouldn't want your passport to show that you had been in Haiti. No. Well, I don't think that they worried too much about that. They had to get visas for Brazil and. Uh, Argentina and Uruguay, and I had a cédula de identidad, 
uh, which little leather case, I've still got it, with my picture and explaining. And it allows you to enter Uruguay as long as you live, as long as I live, without any question. Have you used it since the war? No. No? no. I've been back, back to <laughs> Haiti, but I've never been back to Uruguay. It's a long way. You may, indeed. You mentioned uh, Argentina and Brazil. Mm -hmm. Did your war, war work take you there? Uh, yes. On the way down, I stayed about a week in Rio. And then I was in Belém, Brazil. First of all, in Trinidad. And then in um, Belém, Brazil, at the mouth of the Amazon. And then in Rio for a week. Now, uh, was that just simply the route to get there, or oh, did you really? have duties on the way? I didn't have anything. No, not really. I, they looked after me, the people from the off our office in Rio, and less so in Trinidad. Um, but in Argentina, they met me and they looked after me in in Buenos Aires, and took me out to the British Club. Typical. So it would be very social, really and they, you never discussed your work with no. them at all? No, And they, no. they likely didn't even know, I should think, except perhaps the ambassador. The, uh, there was a man called Rex Miller who was head of our work in Buenos Aires, and he was a civil attaché, as uh, Hugh Grindy was in Uruguay. Um, he was uh, the head of, of our, all our work in Buenos Aires, and in uh, and he was at the embassy. The cover was the embassy there, whereas in Montevideo it was the cover was this railway. Mm -hmm. And well, speaking of your cover, did you ever actually do any railway type work when you were there? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> they no. never bought track or no. <laughs> did surveys or anything. No, no, nothing to do with the railway really. This. I think I told you the office, our office, were consisted in one, two, three large rooms behind Mr. Grindley's. His office was huge, was a fireplace and so on. And behind, there was a small door at the back of it, and it came into our rooms. One, two, three. So this was kind of like a hidden office. There. Really, it was. And there was a door out to the hall, I feel like, from the third room over. And uh, you, we could go out that way rather than through his office, which sometimes was a bit of a nuisance to have to go through his office. And then every evening somebody had to burn all the material in all the uh, waste paper baskets and uh, in the fireplace and that we took turns with that too but uh, we usually came in and out to talk to him through that door and mostly went in and out ourselves like to go for lunch or something mm -hmm. out the other door the back door i i don't know what the rest of the staff of the railway thought we were doing <laughs> because all these people going in and out and, and who were they and a lot of British people from Uruguay had already gone and Argentina and Brazil as far as that goes had gone to England and in the British volunteer movement 
BBM and uh, into the services there or different things. And uh, he was in charge of that too, the British Volunteer Service. But uh, he was quite a leading light in the British colony in Montevideo because uh, he had come down some years before, quite a few years before. His wife, by the way, was Canadian from her father was a dentist in Montevideo and, and she was Canadian. He was Canadian anyway. And uh, then he retired to England after, a while after the war. But he wasn't altogether popular down there. In fact, he was declared persona non grata at one time. He ran a newspaper too down there called the Southern Star, and an uh, uh, English newspaper. He certainly knew everybody there was to know in Montevideo, in the Uruguayan government, and everybody, and that was a good thing. And he learned to speak Spanish in just a few weeks with a terrific English accent. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, mi simpatico amigo! <laughs> <laughs> I think that they secretly laughed at him a bit, <laughs> but, but he, that was all right. He got. He understood them and they understood him. It didn't matter whether he had an English accent or not. <laughs> While you were involved in this type of work, Peggy, uh, did you become privy to any of the uh, the big secrets? Uh, for instance, did, did you know about uh, the landing at Normandy instead of Calais or, or the no, date or anything like I that? I knew that they. This was a worldwide um, plan to try of misinformation, really. In those books that you've read, probably on the man who never was and these kind of things, where a body was found washed ashore in Spain, yes, and uh, had these papers on the yes. prison. It was all done very cleverly to misinform the. Germans, and this was, and all over the world, uh, um, the main, um, um, you know, the head of the British forces, what was his name? Montgomery. Missed it for a moment, yeah. Montgomery, uh, when he was, some other person took his place mm -hmm. and went to, was it North Africa or Cairo, anyway, um, so that they would think that or went to Italy to put them off. All kinds of things. And I knew that there were, and this was the point with Popeye, the agent called Popeye, who was a Spanish sailor, and then this Lodge, who was a Spanish businessman, who both of them worked for both sides. And I knew that they were trying to establish the date not the date so much, but the place where um, the invasion would take place, and everything was up in the air. We knew it was coming very soon, in April and May, 1944. Four, right. 1944. And uh, this was all part of, of just a. So, so you utilized Popeye and Lodge. Uh, for misinformation. Mm -hmm. um, can you recall any specific uh, 
ways that you uh, utilize them? Shipping, perhaps? Yeah, or? shipping. Shipping would be, that was the great thing that we reported on. And, of course, we, a lot, they're very large German population in Buenos Aires and in Montevideo and in Rio. Very large. You know, like 300,000 or something like that. Did, did Uruguay have a democratic government then? Yes. Yes, it did. They did. It was very democratic country at that time. Now, Brazil had Vargas, who was a dictator, and Argentina, of course, had Perón, who was a super dictator. But uh, Uruguay, there in the middle, and very small, had a very democratic. In fact, the the British and the Americans were very, very popular in. So public sentiment was for the Allies? Oh yes, very much so. Whereas in Argentina they tried to, it was really pro-Axis in the yeah. beginning. And then, I mean, I've been to the opera in, in uh, Buenos Aires and on one side of the, of the uh, opera house there'd be a box with, uh, draped with the Union Jack and on the other side draped with the Nazi flag. <laughs> oh, that must have just put shivers right up yes. your spine. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess it's not surprising that so many of these uh, war criminals and so on ended up in Argentina. And, uh, that's Paraguay right. And that there are a great many in southern Argentina in a place called um, Bariloche, which was sort of like Jasper, you know, a mountain. Resort area. Resort. Yeah. And uh, even the uh, Signs in the post office were in German. <laughs> really? Yeah. Ingang and Aufgang on the to go in, exit, and enter in the post office. <laughs> uh, what brought your leaving Uruguay to a head and returning to New York? Uh, was it the end of the war, or yes, you it was the, the end of the war in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which was May eighth, nineteen forty-five. And then Jerry, my husband, he wasn't my husband then, but he was coming home to Canada, at least on leave. He might have had to go to the Pacific. When I was in Panama coming through, we were there a few days, and there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of American troops with those little boots on all they, whenever I think of Panama, I think of boots <laughs> and whether they allowed them to walk through the canal so probably ships were going through but they were being transferred from Europe to Asia I suppose perhaps to Australia I don't really know where they were going but right then the war was over Did, had you had any plans that or perhaps moving to work in the Pacific Theater, or had you figured that I, was enough? No, it wasn't that. It was, uh, I, Jerry was coming home and arrived home in July, and I took quite a long time to get home because I thought, well, I'd probably never be back in, in all these countries again, so I stopped off. And then I had to take some papers and so on, too, to one or two of the places. So I went south in, in Argentina and across in all these different 
Bariloche from there, I, different lakes you go across in a motorboat or on a donkey or whatever it is, and uh, to Chile, and then up by train to Santiago, the capital of Chile, through trip. the Andes, yes it was. And then from there to La Paz, Bolivia, and then across Lake Titicaca in a boat to Puno, and then to, um, I'm uh, trying to think of the name of the, the um, Azte not Aztec and Mayan, but the uh, remains, you know, of the famous, most famous they are, uh, where you, you can't even, the rocks are so carefully put together without any uh, concrete or anything between them that you can't even get a knife in between. Uh, Machu Picchu, that's the name, Cusco and Machu Picchu. And then back to Lima, and then to Guayaquil, and then to Quito, Ecuador, and then over Colombia to Panama. And then the man in Panama, our man in Panama, <laughs> wanted me to take over in Guatemala because this friend of mine from Vancouver, Helen Trates, who was in the same business, um, had TB and she'd had to go home. Those countries are full of, or were anyway, yeah, full of so TB. And, so, uh, so did you work for a while studying for her? In, in no, I didn't. I, I, I had promised Jerry that I would come back to Canada <laughs> at least for a while. So I did and went then to, to Guatemala and stayed a while maybe a week, and then Mexico City, and then Houston, Texas, and I had a friend there from the American Embassy in Montevideo, and then to New Orleans, and then to New York, and signed out in New York, because by that time, you see, when I was in Guatemala, the war was over. It was August the 15th. So, so even, even the Eastern yeah. Theater was, yeah. was shut down? So it was just a question of... Mm -hmm. Well, were you quite shocked by the use of the atomic bomb? Yes, I was. But you know how it is when you're traveling? You don't get the news properly. And then you didn't get it as well in those days the way as it is now with the TV and the radio and everything. Not that the radio wasn't there and giving news, but you just don't get a chance. I was, though, when I finally realized what had happened, mm -hmm. yes, terrible thing, terrible. Because <gasps> yeah, I, I don't think, uh, c you know, considering where you were, certainly people who were in your type of business during the war, some people were privy to that, but I should think that yeah. very little of that would have gotten your way. Oh, no, no, I'm sure that Sir William Stevenson, oh, Bill Stevenson, knew about it, because he was always going back and forth to London, mm -hmm. and but very few people would, you're right. I think the Manhattan secret would have been comparable to Ultra. Yes, you know, in, that's uh, right. In this hemisphere. Anyway. That's right, yeah. But I certainly didn't know anything about it at all. So, so Even there were very few Americans who did. Yeah. Were you debriefed in, in, uh, in Washington? Did they give in, you advice on what to say and do? And In New York, yes. You see, New York was the headquarters for the Western Hemisphere. We got this little report once a week, WHWIB, the Western Hemisphere Weekly Intelligence Bulletin. <laughs> 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 
taken an, uh, an intelligent person to figure out the title. Yeah, you know. <laughs> that's right. And uh, uh, yes, we were told, you know, just pretty much what I'd been told in the beginning anyway, British security coordination, looking after British interests in the Western Hemisphere, and uh, that sort of thing. And then I got that, oh, I should have brought that today, because I, I forgot last time. Uh, a very nice letter from Bill Stevenson saying what we'd done. And I imagine his idea, everybody got one, and I imagine his idea was to help you get a job. Plus, a like people might question, well, what were you doing? <laughs> not me, not a woman so much, but a man. Yeah, yeah. What were you doing not in the services or something yeah. like that? So everybody got one of these very nice letter, and also a sort of certificate like that up there mm -hmm. that says, your almost name and almost like a graduation. Exactly like a like did a degree. He, did he give you? Uh, well, let's call it the degree or the letter personally, or uh, yes, yes, he did. Mm -hmm. So you, a group of you, or yeah, um, no, I think he uh, interviewed us. He, I mean, he get, just it didn't take very long, mm -hmm. but uh, well, it was kind of nice seeing that personal handshake. Oh though, yes, it? it was very nice. He was an awfully fine person, and uh, so many people, of course, were leaving at that time, and then they paid you, and I think they gave us some severance pay, and... Uh, yeah, well, you were doing pretty good money-wise in New York. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. From 80 uh -huh. bucks a month, Canadian, <laughs> to, you know, about two-something well, or whatever it was. Yes, yes, and they're... Uh, of course, there wasn't any difference. I don't think in the in the money at that time, as there is now. But yes, and then so it was back to Canada. Back to Canada to Montreal, mm -hmm. where I met my mother and father, who had were in Montreal for the mm -hmm. Canadian Bar Association meeting, and Jerry was there too. And I understand that. It was a long, long, long time before you even revealed to your mother and father and to your what became your husband mm -hmm. exactly what was going on. Yes, that's true. That's true. What exactly, as I've told you, sort of details on that, I think by that time my father had an idea that it was something secret because he'd been talking to Mr. McKinnon and so on, and then I think I had said to him something about not asking Mr. McKinnon to introduce me to people in Montevideo and Buenos Aires. Yeah. And he must have wondered. And then, of course, I told you, I think before, Chief Justice Harvey, I had given him as a reference, and he went stomping into Daddy's office in the courthouse and said, what in the world is Peggy doing in New York? The RCMP are asking about her. Yeah. So he must have had Boy, some idea. I should think your father's eyebrows yeah. <laughs> hit his hairline. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Yeah, yeah. So, so did did you, in a general way, right away, say, "Look, it was secret work, and I prefer not to discuss it," or I ask not to? Or yes, yes, I think that I did. Um, it's hard to remember specifically what I said, but I think I could say that anyway, more or less. But uh, 
as for anything specific about it, nothing was said until the 70s. That was a long time. But now that I've, in that ultra secret book, <clears throat> there was a girl, one woman in that who had been in the ultra secret thing at, uh, what was the name of the place? Anyway, um, she was even afraid 30 years later she had to have an operation of some kind and she was afraid when she was under the anesthetic that she would say something about this work. <laughs> but it was all right by then, I think. Yeah. Well, everyone had taken it so, so seriously. Yes, you know? yes. Yeah. And there was that book about Sir William Stevenson that came out in the early 60s called The Quiet Canadian, mm -hmm. written by Harford Hyde, who was in the New York office. And uh, so a certain amount came out, all about Cynthia and so on, that double agent. But, uh, no, yes, she did a lot of work with the Free French before the Americans were in the war mm -hmm. in Washington. But uh, otherwise... But you never came across her, did you? No. Day -day work? No. no. No, because that was in 1940 and 41. They established the office right after the fall of France and so on, probably in the summer of 40. And then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> well, uh, but speaking of people that you did see around uh, going through the office and so on uh -huh. in New York, I think there was two big names, uh, namely Noel Coward and uh, Ian Fleming, who you would yeah. see come through occasionally. That's right, they did, yes. Noel Coward. Oh, I, I had them pointed out to me, you know, and I just saw them. I didn't have anything to do with them. And then Ian Fleming, who really didn't mean much to me at the time, but then I remembered him afterwards when all his books came out. But uh, he was he was in naval uniform. And there were I should think quite dashing, you know, yes. man in uniform. Yes, oh younger yes. Younger age. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> a lot of people in yeah. the New York office, most of them could have been in uniform or had been in uniform and then in New York they wore civvy clothes because it attracts too much attention if too mil too many military people are going up to the same floor in the office. And we had the 36th and 37th floor, and then, no, the 35th and 36th, and the OSS. That was the Rockefeller Center, was it? Yeah, in the International Building in Rockefeller Center. That's, <laughs> That's the one with that. Pretty expensive soldier. real estate. Yes, yes it was. You look out the window and see the poor old Normandy on its side, over there, where it had been probably sabotaged. No, so... Here you are at the end of the war. It's time, time to get back to your uh, your regular occupation. Yeah. And, and that's being a librarian. Yeah. But you did stop and get married first. Was, yes. Did you get married in Ontario or out here? No, here in Edmonton. And right after, well, in February 1946. Your dad didn't marry you, did he? No, no, no. I guess, could he have? Yeah, as a judge, I think he could have. Yeah, but I suppose. I guess maybe. Giving you away would have been enough yeah. for all for <laughs> Yes, that's right. And uh, and it was in Christchurch, our wedding here in Edmonton. And then we went out to Victoria on our honeymoon and then went back to live in Ontario for seven years 
in Fergus, that's the town that Jerry comes from, which is really his, he and his father were both with the Beatty Company, which is, oh, they make washing machines and, and dryers and ironers and pumps and barn equipment and that sort of thing. So one of the biggest, was one of the biggest Canadian, it's been bought out by General Steelwares now, but it was one of the biggest Canadian, purely Canadian companies with branches in Australia and New Zealand and London, England. So it was after you got back to Edmonton that you decided to return to librarianship? Oh, you mean when we came back here yeah. from Ontario, yes. Well, I, I really, it was, um, they asked me really because toward the end of the 50s, this baby boom was be almost beginning, I guess, to hit the universities and at least to hit the high schools and they were thinking that soon they would be hitting the universities. And they're right about that. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. And there w just weren't enough trained people, there weren't enough professors uh, in any subject and there weren't enough librarians. There just weren't any. And uh, that was when they they asked me, first of all, for five years if I'd come, in, well, uh, first two years if I'd come in the evenings during the winter session, two or three evenings a week, and then in the mornings during the winter session. And that was rather nice because you had Christmas holidays when the students yeah. were gone and all summer, which was good because my children were quite small than the two youngest were anyway. And then... The, the university by now, like compared to the late 30s when you were first yeah. there, now we're talking early 60s. Yes. I should think the book budget and the number of students and oh. everything had just increased. Oh yes, it was not comparable at all. It was just, even the buildings, although throughout the 60s and 70s, buildings went up, as you know, mm -hmm. just constantly. And I think they're pretty well finished now, but not all together. There's that new business and commerce, uh, business administration and commerce building. But, uh, oh yes, there were 2,000 students when I was a student in the whole university. And that's the number of students in the high school, Ross Shepherd over here, mm -hmm. when my sons went there. And, uh, <laughs> Quite a difference, is right? And, and uh, the whole thing was entirely different. There were still a few buildings, though, that had been the same. It didn't change much from the time it began, a little bit more than began, in the teens and twenties and thirties, because the thirties, because of the Depression. And then I think there about two buildings went up right after the war. Students, the old Students' Union building, which is now University Hall. And then uh, um, one other, what, what one was it? Otherwise, it was exactly the same from about 1920, early 20s until 
the early 50s, and they get, the library, the Rutherford Library, grew, went up at that time, and that's all. And then in the 60s, they just couldn't build fast enough, and the 70s too. What a change between the, the destitute 30s to the yeah. very, very affluent 60s. Yes, that's right. And what a change in the type of students too. Yes, yes. You know, uh, oh, yes. Conservative mm -hmm. students in the 30s yeah. who would mind and be just told exactly what to do and would follow yeah. to the letter. Yes, to that's the right. To the 60s where... Especially only, the 60s, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, do you recall much, Peggy, of, of the 60s as far as uh, the radical movement was concerned? Yes, yes, I do. Um, especially 1968, I think, was the peak of it all over the world, really. There was a sort of revolt in Paris of students that year, and also it was supposed to be all over. Yeah. And uh, the, the leader of it was a fellow called John. Hmm, now what was his name? I can't remember. And uh, J-O-N, he was from Montreal. And he had been to McGill, I think. And he, well, you know Anna Altman. Yeah. She married him eventually, but mm -hmm. this was when he was a student. And what was the name of the organization? Students for Democratic mm -hmm. University. That Which I think was the Canadian equivalent of Students for a Democratic Society in the yes. States. Yes. And I don't know what they were called in France offhand. Yeah. You know. Yes, that's right. And they were demonstrating all the time and so on. I don't think it was ever very strong here, but it was certainly on the campus where a lot of people belonged to it. Yeah, I so. should think the issue, at least one of the issues, would have been the war in Vietnam. and. Uh, yeah. Yes. Perhaps some of the free speech movement out of Berkeley. Yes. Yes, that's right. You know. Yes. And uh, various other places where the students demonstrate. And then the Sir George Williams thing, remember, in Montreal. And the computers being Throwing destroyed. the computers out the window, yeah. And I understand one of the women who was arrested during that was just made a senator. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> Oh, Times change. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, they say some of the squarest people now were those those students. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. And now uh, I understand that you're retired as far as yes. work is concerned. Yes. But your husband is not retired. No, he he has his own business. You see, G. G. Farnell and Company. It's a general insurance business, and our two youngest younger sons are in it with him. And they run the business and he goes in, well, 9 to 12, mostly in the morning, and 2 to 5 or 6 in the afternoon. So. Um, have you thought, now that you are retired and in theory have more time, yeah. I stress that yeah. in theory, theory right. have you ever thought, Peggy, of, of writing uh, an autobiography? Or? Yes, I have. And I wrote a novel Oh, a long time ago, just before I started to work full-time, and then when I started to work full-time, I forgot about it. But it was a novel, using a, a lot of the background. But um, 
the criticism of it was it was too much like a travelogue because I I did have it go all over pretty well uh, the routes that it, you could have gone uh, from Haiti from to um, to Accra in West Africa and then up to Cairo and over to England and that I also not enough sex in it. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's what sells Peggy. I know, I you know. You need three ingredients, yeah. blood, money, and sex. Right. And those yeah. three will sell every time. That's right. Yeah. Well, I would encourage you to perhaps do a rewrite or try yeah. another publisher. I, I yeah. think your story is the most interesting one. Good. Yeah. Well, I'd like to do that. And uh, but I have been busy since I retired with this history of Glenora and then with uh, quite a few other things that I've gotten involved in. But I do, I did want to, I think I told you before I wanted to write Mummy Was a Spy. Because yeah. that was uh, George's comment when he was asking Jerry, my husband, to tell again about the landing the airplane with the engine on fire. And Jerry was tired of telling it, so he said, Mummy was in the war too. And he didn't think much of that, he said. What did Mummy do? Mummy was a spy, so I thought that was a good title. But there were amusing things that happened and so on. And if well, now, well, now that the official secret's act does allow you to talk yeah. most freely. Yes. Uh, once again, I would encourage you to do it. And, good. Uh, and not give up with the first publisher either. Yeah. A lot yeah. of publishers don't know a good story when they see one. <laughs> and I know that you are busy, Peggy. And thanks so much for coming in. Oh, that's and fine. Too. doing these interviews. We, we really good. do appreciate it. This material is a digitized audio recording from the holdings of the City of Edmonton Archives. For more information regarding the recording, please contact us by email at cms.archives at edmonton.ca, by phone at 780-496-8711, or on our online catalog at cityarchives.edmonton.ca.